Hello and welcome to another episode of the Desi EM Project podcast. Today I shall be talking about some myths in emergency medicine. Now there are some procedures or techniques which are either used or not used by physicians based on teachings and papers which are many many years old and they have now been debunked. So yeah, uh, one of my favorite topics myths in emergency medicine. But I'll tell you what is not a myth. Climate change, man. I'm sitting in Delhi. It's about 46 degrees Celsius and it's hot. So, yeah. So to begin with, uh, I'm going to talk about the most infamous Celex maneuver. So, you know, to Celex or not to Celex. We have all heard about it and we've been taught the same. We've also taught to our juniors uh, regarding Celex maneuver or the cricoid pressure. So you know while intubating you'll have someone shouting to squeeze the esophagus to prevent vomitus being aspirated and then in turn complicating your procedure now this was adapted into RSI guidelines thanks to Brian Selick and his paper which was published in 1961 yes it has been almost 57 58 years now now it consisted of temporary occlusion of the upper esophagus by backward pressure on the cricoid ring to prevent stomach contents from reaching the pharynx should any regurgitation occur now his study included only 26 patients and did not detail the techniques of intubation the drugs used or the level of difficulty of the airway and can be safely said that his conclusion that the procedure prevents aspiration was only based on assumptions now there are also some guidelines which advocate applying 30 to 40 newton pressure for the cricoid pressure do tell me how and, and enlighten me as to how one is going to measure the amount of pressure applied while intubating a patient so you know you're going in with a scope and you're telling somebody you know apply 30 newtons of pressure so that the patient doesn't aspirate if he vomits and you have a 100 kg assistant standing in front of you how much pressure is he going to put onto the cricoid uh, ring to uh, you know to to obliterate the esophagus you know the studies have shown that the selix maneuver also prevents glottic visualization and a lot of studies have been done since selix came out with his paper so you know if you actually try and do a selix maneuver it's going to impede your first pass success and any evidence that this maneuver actually helps has been dubbed, uh, deemed dubious now it is no longer recommended in intubations so please take it out of your vocab do not teach selix maneuver to anybody it does not help it's actually dead So the next one, ABG versus VBG, or the arterial blood gas versus the venous blood gas. Don't we love to have this discussion? The lot of times where I've seen emergency physicians having these discussions with their internal medicine or critical care uh, colleagues, you know. And uh, I'll tell you, the emergency physicians we love venous blood gases. Now, many healthcare providers do believe that a venous blood gas would report a higher PCO2 and hence a lower pH than an arterial blood gas. and thus change the management of a patient but this is not so numerous studies have shown that the ph difference in an abg and a vbg ranges from 0.0015 to 0.02 that's it yeah negligible bicarb levels in about 7 to 8 studies have showed a weighted mean difference of only 1.41 millimole per liter that's it also how painful is an abg as compared to a vbg So next time you get a patient who's breathing rapidly with high sugars and vomiting, you can get a venous blood gas when you take an IV, and you can treat the decay away 
the ABG will obviously help you when you're looking at ARDS patients and you need to check out the PO2. That is, I think, the only indication where one should go ahead with ABGs. Or if the arterial lines are in, then you can, you know, continuously do uh, arterial blood gases. But uh, in in rest of the cases, a venous blood gas would do. The next one, ooh, I love this. And we've discussed this in one of our previous episodes, ketamine and head trauma. A lot of physicians are scared of using it, but I love this one. It is actually one of the safest drugs uh, and is also one of the most dreaded drugs uh, drugs in many of the other specialties. But, you know, we as emergency physicians, we love ketamine, uh, obviously, to be used on our patients. <laughs> so Shapiro et al., which we had discussed earlier also in 1972, they used ketamine in about seven patients who had non-communicating hydrocephalus, five patients with abnormal cerebrospinal fluid uh, flow dynamics, and other intracranial pathology had an abrupt increase in ICP. And, you know, since then, ketamine became contraindicated in head trauma patients for the next 40, 50 years. That's not fair. Uh, you know, uh, numerous studies have, you know, shown ketamine to be the most cardiovascular stable drug for induction in trauma patients and have not been shown to increase ICP in head injury patients. It has been researched a lot and the myth has been debunked. Ketamine does not increase your ICP. We've used a lot of ketamine in a lot of our trauma uh, patients who have had traumatic pain injuries, and we've not had much trouble. Uh, but do your own research, you know. I mean, read it up and accordingly change your practices. You won't regret it. The next one. So everybody in RSIs, you know, they, they go ahead and read and learn the 7Ps or the 8Ps and the 9Ps of RSI. And uh, one of the Ps which is usually taught are pre-medications. Uh, you know, airway management is still a key skill for any emergency physician. And uh, RSI is one of the techniques which is used for emergency airways, right? But again, RSI has undergone uh, a lot of upgradation since its inception. Pre-medication with various agents prior to an RSI, uh, when certain conditions are pre-existing or present, is still recommended by some people uh, in acute airway management. They're still written about by many authors in emergency medicine textbooks and advanced airway instructional courses. But, you know, pre-medication has been theorized as a way to limit physiological responses to intubation, which may adversely affect a patient. You know, drugs like uh, lidocaine 1.5 milligrams per kg or fentanyl 3 mics per kg, atropin 0.02 mg per kg can be given uh, as pre-medications in RSI, that's what we were also taught and that's what we also taught uh, to our juniors again. And it's still being advocated, but, you know, uh, pre-medications when performing RSI is often recommended, but data supporting the use of these, these agents are very, very limited. Very few studies have been performed using acute intubations with RSI in the ED and no improvement in outcomes has ever been demonstrated. To be honest, I have never used any pre-med and I've had no problems at all. And I've been intubating patients for the past 15 years now. So, you know, uh, uh, stop reading up about pre-medications uh, to the residents out there. If you're sitting across the table from me and, uh, you know, you don't mention pre-medications in the way you're going to manage a patient, you're going to get full marks from me if you tell me the rest of the steps also. So, you know, there you have it. Uh, to start with, I've just discussed some of the most common myths that have been protocol, uh, protocolized either as a result of studies which did not meet standards or theories, you know, like age-based medicine, which have been debunked by good solid evidences. 
Now, as I mentioned before, this is just the beginning. Uh, we will be back with more Mythbusters in our future episodes. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Show the Desi EM project some love and follow and rate it on Spotify. Uh, also, I'll appreciate it if you can spread the word and, you know, uh, more people listen in. Uh, thank you so much. See you. So for today's episode, uh, uh, you can find all the references in the text that I have. Please go ahead and do your own research. Don't take my word for it. Uh, these are the myths that uh, we don't believe in. And we don't practice most of these in our department. Uh, we've never had problems. So, you know, do your own research, go through the reference list uh, and, you know, accordingly modify your practices. Thank you.